When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, we can talk about turning down the noise of the news cycle. Here are two stories that are utterly ridiculous, stupid, and a waste of everybody's time. But since people want to keep talking about them, we're going to cover them briefly just to show you that you don't need to. Story number one. Donald Trump was photographed and videoed walking around and touring and riding around on golf carts on his golf property in Northern Virginia outside of D.C. Now, he flew into D.C. somewhat unannounced, so of course... The Internet, doing what the Internet does, came up with all kinds of theories on why he would be doing so. And the fact that he was riding around his golf course without any golf clubs, and without golf shoes and with a large uh, contingent of about five to ten people with him brought all kinds of scandal. Like he was having some kind of big conspiratorial meeting. Well, maybe he was. But may I point you to the fact that he was on a golf course. And despite people pointing out and trying to falsely say that there was a bunch of well-known political leaders like Sean Hannity, like Newsom, like other people, and it turned out it wasn't, it turned out these were just his golf course guys. And he was doing what a real estate guy does. He was riding around his golf course, pointing out things he wanted checked, wanted fixed, wanted worked on. Don't believe me? Maybe you'll believe a fire-breathing right-wing radical like Keith Oberman. Well, wait a minute. He's one of the former president's harshest critics, and he even said, and I'm quoting him here from Twitter, I hate to spoil everybody's fun, but clearly the men with Trump at the golf course are not political figures or lawyers. They're his golf course executives. He used to do this crap at his building when I lived there. He points at stuff and he wants it fixed and makes him feel big. I mean, all the IDs, that's Hannity, that's Nunez, that's the new lawyer are wrong. One of those guys is Larry Glick. That's his VP of golf. Not that the New York Post is a real newspaper. This is Keith Oberman I'm quoting here. But Trump holds a quote-unquote mob summit and makes sure he's videotaped flying to it and attending it. They're doing golf. Could be looking for barrel plots or something, but it's golf. So maybe Keith Oberman, probably the first time I've ever retweeted and agreed with him on anything, has a point. It's just golf. Everybody calm down. Another Donald Trump story that's been absolutely ridiculous and loud in the media. Donald Trump, this is the Daily Beast headline, Donald Trump is not invited to the Queen's funeral. And Joe Biden might have to take a bus. Okay, everybody just stop for a second. Um, our friend Sarah Stuck already pointed this out. They have a very limited amount of room in the transportation and logistics to do the Queen's funeral are an utter nightmare. They're doing it in downtown London. If you've ever been to Westminster area of London, there's not a lot of room down there. Okay, and it's in the very heart of the city. So they're talking about the heads of state can't all take their own state cars. They're going to have to take buses and to do this now, President Biden is not going to be on that bus. The Secret Service will never allow that. They're going to make some kind of an accommodation for him. The point is, there's only so much room. 
There is not a delegation going to this. They only had two invites. That's Joe and Jill Biden, the president and first lady. No, Donald Trump wasn't going to be invited. He was never going to be invited. Neither was former President Bush, former President Obama, former President uh, Clinton, or former President Carter, who's probably not well enough to travel that far anyway. Point remains, he was never going to be invited. This is a stupid story. This is the news media putting Trump's name in the headline because it gets the clicks, both the hate clicks and the like clicks. This goes to something we've been telling you all along. Donald Trump, whether he's the president or not, even if he is the president, even if he tries to be the president again, should not be the center of your news media intake. If you center everything on one person, no matter who it is or what it is, but especially if it's Donald Trump, that's all you're ever going to get. And all you're going to get is backwash over flotsam and jetsam related to them. And it doesn't really matter if you're pro-Donald Trump or anti-Donald Trump. If you're dominated by Donald Trump, you lose all the important things we talk about on this program. You lose perspective. You lose an ability to see the bigger picture. You lose your perception of what the rest of the world is going on, and you wind up down in a hole where everything is Donald Trump related. Don't do that. The media, especially the news media and the print media, loves Donald Trump because he's been one of the greatest things for the news media business in the history of the news media business. So they throw his name on stuff like this because he knows we'll eat it up with a spoon. Just don't do it. It's silly. It's dumb. The golf course story is dumb. The golf course online Twitter sleuths that are trying to point out that he's having some kind of meeting. It's dumb. He's done plenty of other bad things. Go pick out something he actually did. And the queen not getting invited to the queen's funeral is also dumb. He was never going to be invited, nor is anybody else that is not a sitting head of state because they don't have room for it. That's the end of it. Everybody settle down. More hotel right after this. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
Okay, welcome back to Herd Tell. An important metric on the economy is out the consumer price index. That is one of the measures of inflation and prices in the economy. We're going to skip the noise. This is the actual press release from the U.S. Bureau of Statistics. We're going to have some of our economist friends on. Um, Stephen Popick, our friend, is going to be on later this week to discuss this more fully. But right now, I just want to read you the release directly. This is the raw information release. It's not editorialized. You can make your own judgment. From the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Consumer Price Index for all urban consumers, the CPIU, rose 0.1% in August. On a seasonally adjusted basis after being unchanged in July, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reported today. Over the last 12 months, the All Items Index increased 8.3% before a seasonal adjustment. Increases in the Shelter, Food, and Medical Care Indexes were the largest of many contributors to the broad-based monthly All Items Increase. These increases were mostly offset by a 10.6% decline in the gasoline index. The food index continued to rise, increasing 0.8% over the month as the food and home index rose 0.7%. The energy index fell 5% over the month as gasoline index declined, but the electricity and natural gas indexes increased. The index for all items, less food and energy, rose 0.6% in August, a larger increase than in July. The indexes for shelter, medical care, household furnishings, operations, new vehicles, motor vehicle insurance, and education were among those that increased over the month. There were some indexes that declined in August, including airfare, communication, and used cars and trucks, which has been sky high and not talked about as much as it probably should be. Back to the uh, economic news release. All items indexed increased 8.3% for the 12 months ending in August a smaller figure than the 8.5% increase for the period ending July. The all items less food and energy index rose 6.3% over the last 12 months. The energy index increased 23.8% for the period ending in July. The energy index increased 23% for the 12 months ending in August, a smaller increase than the 32% increase for the period ending in July. The food index increased 11% over last year, the largest 12-month increase since the period ending in May 1979. Now, what does that all mean? That's the raw data. Gas prices have gone down, but they're still 23% higher than they were a year ago. Food prices are almost 33% more than they were a year ago. And the food index is the largest it's been for a one-year period since the late 70s. People are still hurting out there. It's not getting catastrophically worse, but it's not really getting better either. And folks were hoping for a little bit better economic news. Now that we're deep into August and deep into September on the real calendar, these people are going to start sweating this. The economy is going to be a major issue in this election, and it's a major issue on everybody's mind because it's getting very, very expensive just living life in America. More hotel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, new face on the program. Thrilled to have him. 
uh, deep in the heart of Texas, but he's from Louisiana. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Eugene Ralph Jr., not to be confused with Eugene Ralph Sr., that's why it's there. How are you, my friend? Glad to have you today. Very well, very well. Actually, very happy after the Cowboys lost yesterday. You know, as you know, as transplants, we always have to root for our actual home team. Good man. Uh, I'm with you. I'm always my favorite NFL teams, whoever's playing the Cowboys. So I'm with you. Let's start right there, though, because on our show, you know, we talk about turning down the noise. We talk about we're going to talk about the economy here, which is always a buzzwordy thing. And there's a lot of politics involved. Perspective is important when you talk about a complex issue. Start with your perspective, because I, I think it's important to know where our friends come from here. You're in Dallas, but you come from Louisiana. That changed your perspective on things, not just politically, but life and culture and everything else. Start there as a way of introducing yourself to the folks listening. Your perspective is very much shaped by that, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's definitely, first of all, when you're talking about food, I mean, it's hard to compare any place. You know, whenever I'm going anywhere, I'm always comparing it back home and it never never really measures up but you know in the whole culture as a whole i mean louisiana is, is a very unique part of the south uh of course there's even differences within louisiana but comparing it you know between here and texas uh you know you start to learn that there's a really a, a defined kind of way that texans really kind of move and live their lives that really it contrasts with louisiana even in the south it's a little bit faster you know, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit bigger scale. As I say, everything's bigger in Texas, but unfortunately, that includes things like corruption. So, whenever we're talking about you know economic issues, that definitely comes into play in a state like Texas. Yeah, I can confirm. I spent a couple months in Alexandria, Louisiana, and there are some very, we'll call them special people in Sun Law. Um, <laughs> very unique culture down there, even apart from New Orleans and upstate and the other parts of Louisiana. Fine folks, though. Talk about that right there, because I. Th- I think something we don't talk enough about when it comes to the economy, how much the government bureaucracy, how much corruption is an overriding term, but bureaucracy and corruption go hand in hand. The growth of government and the economy, and then we're going to talk about the recession and we're going to talk about things like that. There's no way to untangle all that, is it? Because government grows, bigger the government, the more corruption, the more waste, the more fraud, the more abuse. That does affect our economy. It has real-world implications. It's not just a buzzword on Twitter that we throw around. Absolutely. And see, actually, this is one of the, the main things I like to bring up whenever we're talking about economy, especially as it relates to government regulations. See, the issue is that whenever you introduce the government into an economy, you know, through whatever kind of forces it wants to basically put in, be it through the mon- monetary system, be it through, you know, uh, regulations of an industry, the distortion that it has from that point going forward it's basically impossible to ever disentangle you know the government from what is private sector uh actors actually acting rationally you know so that we can never actually just look at an economy with government acting and say you know what what is really uh the free market's will here you know because there's just there's it's impossible to say where the free market decisions start and where the considerations of government completely stop because most of the stuff is completely unconscious. It's unconscious. And the other problem is, is because we have representative government, we don't pay attention to the economy except at Christmas and when gas Mm -hmm. prices spike. Now, COVID was an exception because we had, you know, shortages and shutdowns and things like that. So that was a little bit different and people kind of got a little bit of an education on regulations and supply chains and things like that. But outside of that, the truth is the American people just doesn't pay attention to the economy unless it's hurting them particularly stressful. And then part of the problem here too. 
Yeah, I mean, definitely whenever we're talking about recessions, I say a lot that recessions for the average person is just synonymous with bad times. And that's what they really what they mean whenever they start noticing that, you know, prices are going up, that it's getting harder to pay their bills, uh, you know, that their wages aren't seeming to catch up with, uh, you know, and their their portfolios start starting to seem to drop. This is what recession means to most people. So, I mean, it is true that a lot of people aren't paying attention to it. And of course, I don't really actually have any negative feelings for these people. I would say that the preferable situation is one where people don't have to pay attention to these things. I think it's generally unconscionable that everybody has to essentially be an expert on market forces in order to make sure that they can keep their heads above water these days. Yeah, and it's too complicated a term talking to Eugene Ralph Jr. The problem with the economy is it's a math-based thing it's very, very complicated. There's different disciplines inside of economics. It's too big for even the people that do it full time. They have specialties in it. They don't cover the entire economy. So for the average person, they got no chance of understanding all this stuff. What's a better way for us to kind of address these things? Like, you know, you say recession, everybody just goes, ooh, bad, scary word. Things are going to get ugly. Or they hear things like, you know, housing downturns, which it looks like we might be heading towards. Or they see things like gas prices. What's a better way for us to discuss them that avoids that kind of buzzword stuff where it just kind of goes over everybody's head or the math where it just rolls my eyes because I'm not good at math. I'll admit it. I don't like math. It doesn't like me. We just we've learned to live with each other. What's a better way to talk about it, though? Because there's got to be a gap between that before you jump to the politics side of, hey, this is a nuts and bolts thing. We all have to buy stuff. We live in an economy. We work together. We got to be able to discuss this somehow. Yeah, absolutely. I think that really it is those kind of particular things that affect you specifically that really makes it real for a lot of people. So, of course, whenever you talk about the housing market, it can be a little scary. You know, the houses of some people have billion dollar companies that they manage it, but most people, their biggest investment is their house. So it can be a little bit uh, frightening whenever they start talking about housing values going down. Uh, but I think that this is actually one of the good ways to actually kind of get into the topic and the discussion of saying, you know, how is it that what the government is doing is affecting you? It's things that people can actually look at, they can feel, they can touch it. You know, they know generally how these things operate. So there are some things that are always going to be a little bit high level. Like if I'm trying to explain to you uh, how the prices uh, of, a, of an avocado tariff <laughs> is affecting, you know, the deliveries of the whole produce market, then that's, that, that's going to be a little bit difficult. But especially in a situation like now, everybody can understand that, you know, oil prices skyrocketing is going to mean that everything becomes more expensive because everything requires energy. Yeah. And you wrote about this when your piece in the Daily Bell, we're going to work off. We're going to link to it. Y'all need to go read the entire thing. It's also got some good information linked inside of it. You decided to make a lot of friends and write a piece entitled A Recession is Necessary. And then you tagged it, though, unwelcome to cover yourself a little bit. Start right there, though, because let's folks may not fully understand the economy is like everything else. It's got a rhythm and flow to it. There's a circadian rhythm to it. It can't stay up all the time. It can't be down all the time. It has to have some movement to it, but we also understand politically it's musical chairs where the people that are in charge, they don't want that down period to be when they're in charge, right? This is the core conflict here of we need to have downturn periods, but then we start tinkering with the economy to try to pick and choose where that is, and that's where we start getting into making bad situations worse. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we see this happening pretty regularly in American history. Uh, of course, everybody remembers the Great Depression, and uh, a few Austrian economists will be happy to remind people that the Great Depression was only so great because the government refused to actually let the economy be depressed for very long. 
uh, the Great Depression, you know, just like most recessions, uh, would have actually cleared up fairly regularly, but the uh, recovery took years, not because of the war effort, but primarily because the government had decided that it was essentially going to take control, complete control of the economy in order to make sure that they could take credit for the recovery. The same thing happens all the time in the recessions, but whatever we're having, what, what it re really is a recession in economic terms, of course, for the regular person, like I said, it just means bad times. Uh, really be talking about the whole economy. Uh, there's a perfect example that happens that comes up a lot if you talk about, say, a, a home builder, right? And there's credit in the economy that makes him think that there's, say, 20%, 40% uh, more materials available to build homes than there actually are in the economy, right? Because the signals, the pricing signals are completely messed up because nobody's actually buying on their own investment or on the uh, the near investment of, of somebody that's taking a personal interest in the company but that there's a lot of credit floating around there's a lot of fiat being floated around such that the prices don't necessarily reflect the actual scarcity in the market so years down the road a home builder finds out that oh okay i don't actually have uh nearly half of the materials that i need to complete these projects but still many of them are not actually finished. There's only a portion of the homes built. And so he essentially loses his shirt because he can't actually cover uh, all the expenses whenever the bill comes due to say that we actually need to correct the price signals. Yeah, it's funny because like a couple months ago, I actually was pricing a fence for the backyard. I got four dogs and a bunch of teenagers. We need some fencing around here. Um, they wouldn't even quote me a wood fence. Mm. And they're like, they're like, it's too expensive. It'll take too long to get it. So we just stopped quoting it. We haven't quoted wood in over a year now. And it'll probably be two years before we quote wood again. So I'm sitting there trying to figure out people building houses. I forget the number, but it's something like there's 26 different trades to go into house building. And that's why housing is such an economic indicator. Just run with that example for a second of these streams of the economic thought. We pick and choose one amount. We'll pick out you know, the labor market. We'll pick out the unemployment rate. We'll pick out housing. Something like house building and house selling, you get the loan portion of it, the finance portion, you get the material portion of it, you get the labor portion of it. That's where all these economic streams cross. And that's why those are such economic indicators, because something like just building one house involves so many people in so many different parts of the economy. Those are really the things we need to be paying close attention to, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, I'm really glad that you bring that up. A lot of people... Uh, we all understand that, you know, houses, they go up, right? And a lot of times we kind of see the development happening, you know, somewhere in the distance. We notice that the land is being cleared one day and then the next day uh, there's 500 brand new shiny homes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of trades that go into it. Uh, so it is a very good indicator of a lot of how a lot of labor is actually being affected and also a lot of producer prices uh, on materials. So uh, it is the kind of thing that people should pay attention to. Of course, people already do. So I don't mean to tell people that you need to start paying attention to the housing market. Of course, our 401k pays attention to the housing market. And of course, the Federal Reserve pays attention to the housing market, though we would wish they might stop a little bit. Yeah, especially with interest rates going up, people are going to pay very close attention, especially if they don't have a locked in interest rate. Um, Eugene Ralph Jr. joining us. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to dig into this piece that he wrote a little bit more. Why a recession is necessary. Why we have trouble talking about grown folk things like, hey, sometimes you got to have bad times to get to the good times. He's also got a couple of really good one-liners in here we're going to talk about. He uses the term ratchet in a sentence that I just absolutely love as a writer. We'll point that out to him. From Texas, Eugene Ralph Jr. joining us. Hertel continues. Enjoy.
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Having a good time visiting with our friend Eugene Ralph Jr. joining us from Dallas, Texas. Uh, talking a little economy. All right, so you you're a Band-Aid off kind of guy. You just went there. You said, "Look, a recession is necessary." Why do we have trouble with grown folk conversations like this? Because I know nobody wants to have hard times. Nobody wants to have an economic. Nobody wants to see anybody else suffering either. And we understand the lower the classes, the more they suffer in a recession. But these things economically, we know, you know, good times don't last. You're going to have down periods. Why do we have such a hard time just culturally discussing something that, like we talked about, economics is a math problem. It's a mathematical certainty. These things are going to happen from time to time. But we can't seem to discuss it like grown folk, can we? Well, no, but I mean, it's like you say, nobody actually wants to go through the process of pain. I'm not saying that anybody should necessarily be looking forward to a recession. My hope is just that people can prepare as much as they possibly can, which, again, is becoming increasingly difficult because of the way that the government has been meddling in the economy. But it makes it even more important for people like us who are really paying attention to these things and are, are actually willing to be honest with people to say that, hey, you know, things are going to get tough. Uh, but just like whenever you break a bone, the doctor actually has to set it. Uh, the longer that you wait, the more damage you're going to cause. Yeah. And you took on the debate about whether we are or are not in a recession. You know, in one matter, in one way, it really matters. In another way, it really doesn't. But you talked about that part of the debate. The metrics aren't exactly really good metrics to work off of. You talk about things like GDP. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about economic yield. We talked about housing a minute ago. When you sit down to look at these things of whether the economy is doing right or right, everybody's confused because we have a labor shortage. And we have low unemployment. That's just blowing everybody's mind, right? When you're looking at this, what's the indicators you're looking at to really see, are we in a healthy place? Are we not in a healthy place? Are we backing off from the cliff? Are we doing the Wiley Coyote where we're already over the cliff and need to step back before we drop? Yeah, well, we've been running further and further away from the edge of the cliff for a very long time. So really, whenever we're saying what kind of indicators are we looking for, I think I actually did talk about in the article that when it comes to GDP, uh, it can basically never really tell you whether or not the economy is doing well, but it can tell you whether or not the economy is doing poorly, because it's always going to be uh, it's always going to be influenced uh, in the positive direction by government spending. So government contributes to GDP. If GDP is negative, then that means that even with all the government spending, the economy is actually not very good right now. It kind of gives you an idea like that. Uh, but, you know, beyond that, I really do basically go on the idea that is the average American thinking that things are getting harder? Um, you know, as far as economics go, uh, I might be a little bit uh, perverse in the sense that I don't really believe that we should be looking towards a particular indicator uh, on paper to say, is the economy good or is it not? My only concern is whether or not average people are actually having a good or bad time about the economy. Do we need a better definition than just good or bad? Because we have a big pluralistic society. We can have whole sectors of the economy doing great during a depression. We saw that historically. You know, we had the, the Great Recession, they called it, in the late 2000s. There were sectors of the economy that did gangbuster business, even though the housing market collapsed. Do we need better terminology here of good and not good? Because we have such a diverse, large economy, you know, not everybody's hurting. Not everybody's doing well. Do we need a better way of kind of divvying that up when we discuss it? for the masses, for lack of a better term to put it. Mm -hmm. I definitely see why that would come up, especially you know, we have the same sort of discussion whenever people talk about GDP because certain industries can contribute pretty significantly. 
So, you know, say everybody talks about that, uh, you know, Wall Street is going gangbusters, even as Main Street is clearing out and we're losing manufacturing. So definitely there are certain sectors that might actually do very well, uh, even if the economy overall is doing poorly. But I think at the, on, at the end of the day, if we're talking to, you know, the average person, you know, we, we can't really spend a whole lot of time uh, explaining to everybody, every single economic indicator. Uh, I really do think that there's 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 uncanny usefulness in actually just finding out what the sentiments are of the average person in the in the country. Now, this brings it to the political part, though, and you touched on it in the piece. Policymakers, this is you, I'm quoting you, have a brief period to disseminate realistic forecasts for the economy. Now, they're not going to do that. No, because part of the part of the gig when you're let's just say the president and, and the president gets too much blame and too much credit for the economy. It's just whoever's in the seat. That's the deal. But the president and Congress and the national leaders, they play musical chairs with this. And I don't blame them. I'd probably do the same thing. They just want to try to keep it good if it's good. If it's bad, they just want to blame the last guy or the guy coming next to try to keep blame. It's always going to be that way. But like we said, there's a nuts and bolts part to this economy stuff. I think they have an obligation to be more realistic with the information they're giving. I'll give you a good example. Biden with the gas prices. You know, the comm shop for the White House was terrible on the gas prices stuff because it's like, well, if you're not going to take part of the blame when they came up, you're not going to get the credit when it goes back down. You know, you didn't have to come out and say, well, it's all my fault. That's not going to happen. But wouldn't it have been better just have some realism like, yeah, gas prices are high. There's not a lot we can do about it right now, but hang in there. They're going to come down eventually, blah, 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 wordy, wordy, wordy. That would have sounded better. And then when they come down, you get a little bit of the credit for it. Not, well, it's all Vladimir Putin's fault. And like, oh, this is all my gain now that it's dropped. I think a little realism would go a long, long way here, don't you? Right. Okay. So, yeah. So definitely part of the difficulty. You would want the government to be very honest about the kind of things that they're seeing. And that's, I guess you would say that that part in my piece was a little bit of, of hopefulness that the government might have a little bit of honesty with the people, even though it's not really characteristic. Uh, but of course, in a lot of ways, they really can't, right? Um, it, it would undermine their confidence too much. Uh, if they were really honest with people, they would reveal how much uh, of these problems are of their own causing. And so you really can't get beyond that. Uh, if the government is going to, in some way, actually be a little bit more straightforward, it would at least just say, you know, things are actually going to be a little bit more difficult, even if they're not going to precisely say that, you know, it's our fault. They <laughs> really admit that. Uh, but they could at least come out and say, hey, you know, these are kind of particular things that we expect to see, you know, in the coming months. We expect to see food prices going up. Uh, we expect to see gas prices coming down slightly, uh, you know, but this is just a little bit of a, the elastic band coming back, um, you know, but I, I don't necessarily expect it of them now. Yeah, but if we're going to be blunt about it, we have to have recessions, whether we like them or not. It's the role of government to prepare for crisis before the crisis. We've already learned with COVID that the reaction to a crisis that we're not prepared for usually gets really ugly and people get hurt even worse than they probably should have been. This, this is a foundational role of government is to prepare for crisis. And when they don't do it, this is something us, the people, need to pay attention to and try to hold them accountable for and at least make some noise about, shouldn't it be? Well, we, if we accept the frame that the government is capable of actually responding to a crisis in, in a constructive way, then yes. But it's generally my frame that the government can basically do nothing right except for break things. <laughs> so we do actually have this issue come up where we actually try to say, okay, well, what is it that the government can do here? 
And it's the same way whenever I was talking about the economy earlier. It's impossible to know exactly where a free market uh, consideration of, of exactly, you know, what are what are my economic circumstances and actually is making a business decision. Where does that stop? Where does the consideration of government regulations on the particular matter begin? It's impossible to disentangle it. And the same way, whenever the government starts to say we're going to respond to a particular crisis in the economy, it necessarily does that by shutting out other actors who would be more nimble, who would be better suited to actually bring relief to people uh, either in their own communities or just in their own particular uh, field of focus. So we really, if we're trying to talk about what can the government do to make this better, the first thing that they can do is just stop and say, hey, um, I think that everybody else, you probably have better ideas. Uh, that $4 trillion that we stole from you this year, we're actually going to give it back to you and let you figure this out. And on that optimistic note, uh, no, we've we've been beating up on the government a little bit. Let's Let's circle back to the beginning of this for a bit of an optimistic note, though. It does look like there's some decent signs that the economy might at least be leveling off and, and might get a little bit better in the coming days. What are some of those indicators like we talked about before? What are you watching for that? I know inflation's kind of at least leveled off for the moment. Gas prices are coming back down a little bit, although they're still high comparatively. What's a couple of the things you're watching for to be like, okay, here's some light in the tunnel that we can actually look at and it's not just a train coming at us? Well, I do want to say I don't want to consider it a light in the tunnel just yet. I will say at the very least, the the rate of our decline has slowed significantly, right? So, of course, whenever things were really first getting going, when when the money printer was was going at full bore uh, and when basically all energy production had had ground to a halt for a moment, uh, things were looking pretty dire in the very near term. And now it just looks like they're going to be very uncomfortable for a while. Uh, As far as what are the kind of indicators that we could see that would be overall improving, um, I think it's very difficult to actually see that the economy is going to be in a good place in the near term uh, without us actually going through something at least about as bad as we've experienced uh, pretty pretty soon, really. Um, at the end of the day, everybody understands that labor markets are not very good in the United States. Um, we're having some issues actually keeping up employment, uh, employment participation rate is dropping, is pretty low. It's unfortunately low. Um, So as far as actual, what we're looking towards, what is is the actual health of an economy? It's capital accumulation, uh, it's production. And we're just not seeing very much of that right now. This is the biggest problem, right? Is that people actually being able to save, the people's savings rate is, is extremely low. It's almost zero in the United States. So until we actually start seeing that being able to improve, then we don't really, we're not really in the place that we should be expecting it to to turn around at that point. Yeah. And the personal savings, when you combine it with the level of personal debt is a very bleak picture. We'll have to get into that some other time. That old, you know, if you need a $500 today, could you get it? That old metric. Another topic for another day, my friend, Eugene Ralph Jr. joining us. Uh, okay. We've been holding the government accountable. We've been pretty rough on them. Friends hold friends accountable. We got to talk about your Twitter feed right quick. <laughs> you tweeted, and I quote, if King Charles's only contribution is turning public and political opinion against aggressive modern architecture in his reign will have been a smashing success. Eugene Ralph, I defend com- your tweet, which I, I agree with. By the way. This. Look, I 
I hate modern architecture. There's a popular meme that goes around that shows a, a recent or more recently built house. I think it was in the 1970s, very much of the, the kind of modern architectural sense of the time. And it's absolutely disgusting. It's the most horrible thing that you've ever seen. And then we have another picture of a house built in the 1500s. And of course, nobody back then who was building these vernacular homes was you know, classically trained in an academy for architecture, right? I think that architecture and art generally, uh, the kind of things that are being produced in society says a lot about its desire to actually survive. And right now we just don't have a lot of things that are being built in the public space that really uh, encourage people to, to look towards higher things and to really ex succeed on a human scale. It's, it's towering, it's towers of glass and steel uh, that all look like they are, are essentially meant to oppress you <laughs> is the way that I look at it. So I would say that if the if King Charles, since he does have this kind of interest in a, a more classical architectural style, if he kind of reinvigorates that uh, first in the United Kingdom and then hopefully in the United States as well, then I would begin to hail him as the king of ages. I am actually okay with the uh, towers of glass and steel. Um, my own personal architecture is, I loathe with a passion strip malls. Oh yeah, I am absolutely. I I can't sit. We had our urbanist friend on talking about him the other day, and he agreed with me. I I can't stand strip malls. They're driving me crazy. And every time I turn around, they're building another freaking strip mall. And it's all it is is, is the same companies. Every time they move a new strip mall, they just switch to the new one, leave the old one vacant, and then you got a mess on your hand. So okay, I'll go with you on that one, my friend. We're okay on the agriculture, but yeah, if we could get rid of it. If I could have my one dictatorial thing, we'd get rid of this. And the urbanist can give a, a much better view on this than I do. I don't really specialize in the area at all. But yes, uh, strip malls are, are they're, they're a measure of, of how bad our whole development is overall. Yeah, strip malls are why we're failing as a country. I'm convinced of it. <laughs> uh, Eugene Jr., uh, great chatting, my friend. We'll definitely have you back. Till folks see you back on Herd Tell again, let them know where they can follow you, what you have going on, how they can keep up with you until we talk to you again. Absolutely. I'll be writing many more pieces. So, of course, we're working uh, on, on all things related to the economy. You'll see that kind of stuff coming out. But you can follow me on Twitter, and that's E-Ralph-J-R. So Eugene Ralph Jr., but with the initials at the front and back. We appreciate your time. Great talking to you. We'll definitely have you back soon. We're going to link to his Young Voices page and his Twitter, which you can see on the screen there if you're watching on the YouTube or the Facebook feeds. Eugene Ralph Jr., great job. Great chatting with you, my friend. We will talk again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. We've covered this story a couple times over the last year or so. We've had guests on like Mark Izagiri and others talk about the fact that down in places like the Rio Grande Valley and the border communities in Texas, Hispanic folks are and Hispanic heritage folks are switching parties and moving to the Republican side. Now, this has shocked some of the Democratic folks, but it's there's an important lesson within this. We remember years ago, if you're old enough to remember this, demographics is destiny, the Democratic Party told us. But that's nonsense. Demographics are not destiny because demographics don't vote. People do. And people have multiple things that affect how they vote. And it's not just their demographics. Where they live 
has a lot to do with it. For example, Wilmington, where our radio partner broadcasts out of, all of a sudden, a few years ago, school choice shot to the top of opinion polls, even though downtown Wilmington is more of a democratic progressive area. Why? There was a big school scandal of sexual abuse and other things, and the school board covered it up. So all of a sudden, school choice became a hot-button issue, even among people that are progressive and usually against that topic. Down in the Rio Grande Valley, things like the border, things like immigration hit differently because it's right in people's faces all the time. And also, the demographics don't tell the whole story. Are you a second-generation Hispanic, a third-generation Hispanic? What kind of Hispanic are you? What's your class structure? Are you a small business owner? Are you a police officer? These things all affect how your politics are. Let's go to the Texas Tribune real quick. They are once again covering this story in the run-up to the 2022 midterms. Uh, it says, I'm picking up kind of halfway through the piece, but Democrats nationally weren't talking about the border issues the community was experiencing firsthand. They were critical of efforts led by Republicans like Gr Governor Greg Abbott to build a border wall and increase the presence of law enforcement. Democrats weren't listening, so many of them started switching parties. The county's clerk and treasurer also became Republicans, as have most of the elected officials in county government. This is Terrell County, Texas. Quote, seeing the lack of support from the federal government has really impacted the community, and they're looking and leaning towards the Republican Party, Carruthers said. That's the person in this piece. In 2014, the percentage of registered voters casting ballots in the Republican primary in Terrell County was 12%. By 2022, it had more than doubled with 31% of the county's registered voters casting ballots for the GOP primary compared to 10% of the Democratic primary. It's the first time in at least eight years, Republicans voting in Terrell County primary outnumbered Democrat. The shift in alliances is being replicated across the Texas-Mexico border and is encouraging for Republicans who are campaigning on border security and making a big push to win over Hispanic voters. It's also concerning for Democrats who have long held sway in these border and South Texas communities. In 15 counties along the Texas-Mexico border, the Rio Grande Valley, participation in Republican primaries has grown steadily since 2014. That year, 23,243 voters participated, according to for about 2% of the voters. This year, it's 54,000, making up 4% of the voters. While Democratic voting in the primaries still far outnumber Republicans, the trend line is moving in the opposite direction. 2014, more than 122,000 people turned out for the Democratic primary. But after nearly 214,000 cast their ballots in the 2020 Democratic primary, of course, that was a presidential election year, that number fell to 131,000 this year, making up less than 10% of the voters in the region. Juanita Martinez, the Democratic Party chair in Maverick County, which is 95% Hispanic, acknowledged the Republican Party has grown rapidly in her area in recent years and is mounting voice for its challenges to establishment Democrats in her South Texas community. Only one candidate running for county office has run as a Republican in Maverick since 2016, but this year, the GOP has mustered eight candidates for local office. Still, Martinez believes that most of the area's voters are still with the Democrats, and the local party is gearing up to push back. Quote, everyone knows the Republicans have been targeting the border, Martinez told at a recent meeting of volunteers preparing for the Beto O'Rourke. That's who's running for the Democratic nominee for governor of Texas. We're mostly a Democratic community, so we have to work it, work it, work it. No way in hell can we ever let even one Republican get into office. That's our main objective, keep Maverick County blue. A few years ago, a Republican candidate courting voters in South Texas or along the border was a rare sight. 
bolstered by Trump's better-than-expected performance in the heavily Hispanic region south of Texas in 2016 and 2020, the GOP began targeting those voters. Border security and immigration made up a big part of that messaging, but so were other social issues like opposition to abortion and gun rights. And on top of the ticket in Texas, Governor Abbott, who has long pursued Hispanic voters in the area, has honed in on South Texas as a priority of his campaign efforts. In April, speaking before the Latino Conservatives Luncheon in San Antonio, Abbott boldly declared he would win Hispanic vote over Democrat Beto O'Rourke. In 2020, Republican Monica De La Cruz came within three percentage points of unseating Democratic Congressman Vincent Gonzalez in Congressional District 15, a heavily Hispanic border district that includes McAllen. This year, De La Cruz is running for the same seat again, was drawn out, and moved over to neighboring District 34. There he will compete against another conservative Latina, Myra Flores, who is the incumbent congresswoman after winning a special election earlier this year to replace Democrat Filamon Vila, who had resigned before the end of his term. Republicans are also running Casey Garcia, former staffer for the U.S. Senator Ted Cruz in the Laredo District 28 against longtime incumbent Henry Quirler. The Republican push has also trickled down to the local levels, but Democrats aren't laughing. Fueled by financial support from Republican groups like Project Red Texas, which focuses on electing Republicans to local government, the Maverick County GOP candidates are well-funded, putting up election signs, posters for GOP candidates, and working with door-to-door campaigning. Their Democratic counterparts have less than two months until Election Day. Things change rapidly in politics. Nothing is forever. And then if you're along the southern border, things are changing rapidly. If your national party isn't giving you stuff you need for a local issue, these sort of things happen. People are not monoliths, and the country is very pluralistic. What Democrats in Texas along the Rio Grande need, and what Democrats in the Northeast need, and what Democrats in California need, and what Democrats in the heartland need, are not always the same. That's the story here. Politics is still local, even on national issues. And sometimes those local issues get you crosswise with the national party. Something to keep an eye on, but first of all, remember what we started with here. Demographics have never yet voted in an election. People do. Demographics is a tool to give you information, but demographics doesn't have feelings and doesn't have bank accounts and doesn't have families and doesn't have thoughts and political ideologies. People do. Politics is a people business, and if you ever stop paying attention to the people, you will wind up getting surprised at the ballot box, especially places where you don't expect it. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Something a little lighter, something a little on the easy side to finish off the program today. This comes from our friend Keith Conrad. We use his new side quest frequently. Uh, this is from our friends Fox 5 DC. Uh, Jim Loki, we need to get him on the show. He said he'd do it. Uh, do you talk to your plants? Nearly half of people who participated in a recent survey said they do, and it may even help a person's mental health. By doing so, this survey conducted in August by Trees.com Ask 1,250 people in the United States about their plant talking habits. 
it found that 48% of people admitted to talking to their trees and or plants, and those that do, one in five say they speak to their plants every day. Many of those who speak to their greenery said they also, some added benefits. About 62% of respondents say it helps their own mental health. 65% says it helps the plants to grow. Among those who said talking to their plants helps them grow, 60% actually reported seeing a difference in the plant's growth when comparing periods of talking to them and not talking to them, according to the trees.com survey. Not sure how scientifically accurate this survey is. The survey specifically asked why and how often people talk to their plants. A connection to the elements, thinking out loud, and thanking them for their beauty were all cited as reasons for chatting with the flora. Nearly a quarter say they think of them as pets. Uh, I water my plants and walk my dogs in the morning at the same time, so there may be some validity to that accusation. Of course, the plants never pee on the dogs, although vice versa happens just about every day. A majority of 70% said they speak to their plants occasionally. 20% speak to their plants every single day, and 9% rarely talk to them. Rude, the survey found. We asked survey respondents a few questions that non-plant lovers might deem strange. It turns out 64% of plant talkers do believe their plants have a soul or a spirit. Oh, dear Lord. Another 28% said they hug their plants while 23% say they have kissed their plants. Okay, now we're getting cringy, folks, but whatever. I would remind you, though, that there's a very old joke online, and it goes like this. Don't forget to drink in water and get sun. You're basically a houseplant with complicated emotions. That's why we also talk about mental health. Make sure you catch uh, yesterday's Best of Her Tell, Dr. Catherine Gordon. Lots of really good stuff on there that is both serious and fun. That'll do it for her tell today. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We program this show for you. If you got questions, comments, is there a story you don't think is being covered? We've done segments and whole shows based off of your feedback. Let us know. Email at herdtellshow, the gmail.com, at herdtellshow on the Twitter. Would love to hear from you. Also, all of the platforms that you get this show, whether it's watching on YouTube, watching on Facebook, uh, all the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever, uh, they all have a comment section. We do see those. You can talk to us there. Please leave us a rating. That's really important. And share us on your social media. We'd sure appreciate it. You give us the most valuable thing you have, your time. We never want to waste it. Let other folks know that we won't be a waste of their time either. We're going to continue to do what we do, turning down the noise of the news cycle so that we can get to the information that matters, discerning the times that we live in. That'll do it for us today, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world. We hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Talk to you again real soon on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Sorry.